<clears throat> if there's one thing I know, it's that you are here this morning uh, due to the mercy of God. We just sang that song. We all experience various joys and or sorrows or whatever in between. And undoubtedly, we, we carry those with us on Sunday morning. We can't help that. So I don't know if you have born or carried in with you joy or sorrow or something in between. But one thing I do know is, is that you are here this morning because of God's mercy. Either you are not a Christian, and if that's the case, welcome. We're glad you're here, and we hope you'll spend some time and, and speak and talk with us after the service. But if you are not a Christian, I can say definitively you are here this morning because of God's mercy. You're here with the people of God. It's where we gather every week to hear this saving message once again and be reminded of the goodness of our God. And I pray that you might hear something wonderfully strange today about this, this group of, this measly group of people gathered here today to worship a very good God. And I pray that you would call on the name of the Lord. So you are here this morning by the mercy of God to hear the saving message of Christ. Or you may be a Christian and you already know that it's all mercy, of course, right? The mercy of God, is, as Pete just read a minute ago, is what delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son where there is redemption, forgiveness of sins. And the Christian, you are gathered here this morning once again to worship God and be with his people and, and for the next couple of hours, or not couple of hours, sorry, <laughs> Don't worry, guys. This isn't anything out of the ordinary. Our service usually is almost two hours. So at this point, for the next hour or so, to set our minds on the glorious grace of God. So with all of that, whoever you are and wherever you find yourself, welcome to this morning's experience of mercy. You, never get, you will never hear this sermon preached in this day on this situation again. So I pray that you would take advantage of that, take advantage of the mercy of God that is offered to you. Uh, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, if you remember from the last time I preached, you heard that we are, uh, I am walking through Philippians as I have opportunity. Uh, today we'll be in chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. And that puts us on the parallel tracks of Romans and Philippians at least on Sunday mornings. I know we're in several other places in men's and women's Bible studies and in one-on-one -on -one conversations and discipleship opportunities or in several places. But at least on Sunday mornings, the parallel tracks we find ourselves on is Romans and Philippians. And if you've been with us recently, you know that we've been in Romans 9 through 11, and we've been at ground zero of the intersection between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility to believe. That's been uh, throughout for several weeks now, and I hope you've been able to think through some of those things in your gospel communities. But given how key that fact has been to Paul's logic in Romans, I wanted to take a minute and point out a similar thread in Philippians. We're not going to take note of this <clears throat> during the sermon, but I do think it's helpful just to point out that that's, that, that idea that we're walking through in Romans is not unique to Romans. So that's what we've been hearing in Romans, but in, in uh, Philippians what we see is this similar tone of 
we see God's preservation of the Christian, and we see the Christian's perseverance. So just in the first chapter, this is what happens. In verse 3, Paul thanks God for orchestrating his relationship with the Philippians. Then in verse 5, he acknowledges that it's the Philippians that have entered into this partnership. Then verse 6, back to God as the one who is keeping and sustaining the Philippians to the end. And then verse 7, Paul goes back to recognizing the Philippians' work in participating with him. And then verses 9 through 11, as Paul prays, he acknowledges that all of the Philippians' sanctification is ultimately going to come from God. So in the first 11 verses, Paul gives agency to God, Philippians, God, Philippians, God. And nowhere is this more evident in Philippians than in chapter 2. If you, if you want to look on the next page, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works to persevere. Man works to preserve. This is what we see in Philippians. And I want to point that out just to highlight the consistency of God's word. That both of the, the parallel tracks that we find ourselves on, Romans and Philippians, consistently testify that God is in control and we have a job to do. God is sovereign over salvation and man is responsible for his unbelief. That's what we see in Romans 9 through 11. God is in control to preserve the Christian and the Christian is responsible to persevere. I think that's beautiful consistency from the two places that we find ourselves in on Sunday morning. So with that, we'll turn our focus specifically this morning to verses 7 through 11. You can go ahead and stand. Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, we'll read. I'll make this point real quick. I say this to our students often, is that uh, the answers come from the text. The answers are in the text. Because what happens, this happens with adults too, but you ask a question about the, the, the Bible, and everybody starts looking around, looking at the ceiling, at the floor, at one another. I say, guys, the answer is not on the ceiling. It's not on the floor. If the answer is anywhere in this room, it's in the text. So one of the things that we've, we've been working on is as we, as we talk, we keep our Bibles open. And uh, we, don't, we, don't read the, we don't read it and then just put it under our seat afterwards. And I see that. I see that, most of us doing that, keeping our Bibles out. And hopefully for our students and for us, that's just a simple, it's a good habit to be in, to know that where do the answers come from? They come from the text, always. So with that, let's go to the text. Philippians 1 We'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we come to you this morning willing, to, willing and ready to hear what you have to share with us. I pray that, that we would be free from distraction, and that as we said earlier, as we, as we come in here, perhaps with joys or sorrows, that we would be free from those things now so that we might be able to, to pay attention and hear the God who speaks. We pray for all of those who are teaching with our children this morning and all of our children. God, we, we pray that you would open their hearts to see the truths of the gospel, even the young ones, even the little bitty ones. God, you might start to plant those seeds now. And God, that they likewise might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness because we know they're born in sin and into the kingdom of your beloved son. We pray that for our children. We pray that for ourselves. We love you. We're grateful for this word. We're grateful for your son. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is The Apostles' Affection. As we move into Philippians, we need to remember that we are like flies on the wall witnessing a conversation. There's, a, there's an intimate correspondence happening here that we have been invited into, and we are catching a glimpse of this intimate correspondence between two parties. Easy to just insert ourselves and make Paul talk directly to us and forget that he ever actually wrote this to the Philippians. We are actually flies on the wall hearing this conversation. There's a reason that Philippians is considered to be among Paul's most personal letters. And at this point in the text, he's not, he's not being purely theological at all. He's not being practical. He's just being affectionate to his friends in Philippi. So while we are eavesdropping then, as it were, on Paul's expression of affection for these brothers and sisters in Philippi. And the plane that Paul is operating on, at least here at the beginning, is the horizontal plane. He's dealing with person-to-person gospel relationships. Of course, we remember that for Paul, this whole conversation, this whole conversation happening on the horizontal plane, for him is birthed out of the vertical plane. You may remember from the last sermon in Philippians that there's this three-way bond between Christ, Paul, and the Philippians. That because Christ is bound to, uh, because Paul is bound to Christ by the gospel, and likewise the Philippians are bound to Christ by the gospel, they are then necessarily horizontally bound to one another by the gospel. Everything horizontal is because there is vertical participation in Christ. We have to remember that as we think through Philippians and as we are brought into this intimate conversation on the, at first, horizontal 
plane. It's all happening because of the vertical plane. And as we hear this, this intimate conversation between Paul and the Philippians, we see three things about his affection. We see the depth of Paul's affection, the object of Paul's affection, and the product of Paul's affection. Let's begin there in verses 7 and 8 and look at the depth of Paul's affection. The first few verses of Philippians, in 3 through 5, Paul was expressing his gratitude. Remember, he was, he was saying how, how often and frequently he remembers them, the joy that he finds with, with expressing gratitude to God and thinking of his brothers and sisters there, the, the comprehensiveness with which he prays for them because he prays for all of them. And if gratitude was his expression at the beginning, his expression now is affection. He's going to explain how deep this affection goes, but before we hear that, I want us to observe where this affection is located. Yes, it's deep, but where is it coming from? Well, he tells us there that it is right for me to feel this way about you all. It is legitimate, he says, that I have this gratitude and joy and the confidence that he mentioned in verse 6 and this affection. It's legitimate that I would have this feeling towards you. But contrary to how we think about feeling, Paul is not actually appealing to his emotions. His affection is not housed in his emotions. I want to I go to a couple of other places in Philippians here to show us how we should think about feeling. Because this word he uses for feel appears almost, almost ten times in this letter. I want to take us to a few of those to help us think how we should understand Paul's feeling toward the Philippians. <clears throat> go to chapter 2, verse 5. You may be familiar with this. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul saying, have this mind there, have this mind is the same word as feel. He, he's encouraging them to resolve to set their mind in a certain direction. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Paul says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Here's the word. With minds set on earthly things. So he's talking about those with an intentional, settled disposition towards the things of earth. Perhaps the most surprising usage of this word is in chapter 4, verse 2. I treat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, these two ladies are in disagreement, presumably because they are relying on their emotions to get over whatever this disagreement is. And Paul says, no, no, don't feel in agreement he says, resolve to set your minds in the same direction. Resolve to agree. So with that context, we reread verse 7, and the word, word feel is the same word that was in those other three verses. And we realize that Paul's affection is not at all located in his feeling or his emotion toward the Philippians. His affection is such that it is the result of an intentional and settled mindset towards these folks. His mind is resolved towards affection. Now, to be clear, 
honest. We are emotional people. God created us emotional beings. So we're not going to jettison that. Emotions are not evil. They're not bad. They're not something to hide in the corner. But what is clear here is that the rudder that is directing Paul's affection is not his emotion. It is his mind. Paul's mind is what is directing his affection. It is intentionally set in this way on these people. And one of the ways he understands his partnership with the Philippians then is that it is intentional. His affection is not the result of his current mood. It is not the result of his current emotion. Instead, his affection for these Philippians is subject to the unchanging reality of their mutual participation in Christ. This is why he can intentionally set his mind on them with an affection that has spanned miles and years. And it seems as if, based on what we read in chapter 4, his affection spans a good deal of recent silence. Chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at length you have now revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but had no opportunity. So it seems as if the Philippians cared for Paul, but they didn't have a way to express it, or they couldn't find him. But all Paul knows is he's just been heard crickets from the Philippians. And he says, I'm glad you finally revived your concern for me. But Paul's affection can survive the silence because it is not based on their reciprocity. It is based on his intentionally settled mindset toward them. It seemed to generate a good deal of conversation last time uh, when we talked about being partners in the gospel. We talked about what it means to have this true biblical fellowship. And when we think in those terms, and then we, we add it to this idea, the reality is that we will never have that true biblical fellowship as long as our relationships are governed by the rudder of our emotion. It just won't happen. If we rise and fall based on our most recent interactions, that says nothing of the beauties of the gospel, which is the very thing that generates Christian fellow. That's the way of the world that says, treat me kindly, agree with me, do things my way, and we'll be just fine. The true test of our affection for one another is when things don't go our way, when you disappoint me or when you don't act or react or speak or don't speak in the way that I anticipate, does my affection wane? Does it waver? Paul's example in the Philippians is it should not because our affection is the result of our mind and our mindset. We'll hear much about this as we walk through Philippians, the mind of the Christian. And what we're seeing here from Paul really is the intersection of two main themes in Philippians. One theme is this idea of the mindset of the Christian. And the other theme is that gospel-centered relationships put self in the back seat and others up front. So Paul is demonstrating then the intersection between these two themes that he has resolved in his mind to, in humility, consider the Philippians more significant than himself. He'll say that in chapter 2. Or he has intentionally uh, decided to look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of the Philippians. 
He'll say that in chapter 2. You see this intersection between these two, two, two key themes of mindset and putting self last. This is the example of Paul. And it's important to see because biblical fellowship that we've talked about, with this kind of affection that Paul is about to talk about, it can only function in this way. Because again, it is not grounded in emotion, but it is grounded in an intentional resolved mindset that loves, bears, forgives, because we are united to the same Christ. Paul is operating this way on the horizontal because of the vertical. That's what allows him to set his mind in this way on the Philippians. And the way he has set his mind with this affection is deep, mighty, profound. He holds them in his heart. We've heard before that the heart is the the center of one's consciousness, the center of one's being, the very core of who they are. This is, not, this is not trivial sentimentality for Paul. This is, no, this is not a hallmark card. There is no more central place that he could have them than his heart. I would venture to guess that, that maybe outside of our spouse or our immediate family, very few of us hold other people in this way that Paul is describing. That's, that's not an indictment on us. I'm just simply trying to point out that this affection that Paul has is uniquely profound for the Philippians. And if that's not enough, move on to verse 8. Paul says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He starts with an oath. God is my witness. Call on God and he will corroborate the fact that this is in fact the true reality and yearning of my heart. And it seems straightforward enough for him to say, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. But he's actually using the most figuratively packed language available to him. So we look at this word affection. This word affection literally means entrails or intestines or bowels. It's the literal meaning of that Word. So then figuratively, it means that this is affection coming from the deepest recesses of a person. If you want proof of that, you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 18. You don't have to turn there. But that's the account of Judas's death. And when it says there that the body fell headlong and his bowels gushed out, same word here as affection. I see all the middle school boys looking for Acts 118. They didn't know that was in the Bible. It's there. It's there, but Paul's trying to communicate a longing that comes from the deepest and most inward part. But the interesting fact is, he's not claiming that it's his affection. He says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. And he just intensifies it again. I want to read this quote from Alec Maltier. He was a scholar and and commentator who just passed away several years ago, he writes this about the fact that Paul has the affection of Christ. Paul is saying that he has so advanced in union with Christ that it is as if Christ were expressing his love through Paul. Two hearts beating as one. Indeed, the one heart, the greater, that would be Christ, 
has taken over and the emotional constitution of Christ himself has taken possession of his servant. It's as if Paul is saying, the compassion that Jesus Christ has for you, that compassion is at work in me for you. Could you imagine hearing that from someone? Could you imagine the Philippians hearing that, that this other brother in Christ is so passionate about my being in Christ? How empowering that must be and how strengthening to their faith that must be to know that there is another who cares for me at this level. The affection of Paul that he has for the Philippians is as deep as the very affection of Christ. I appreciated this comment from Marcus Bachmuel. He said that, that Paul would make this statement is evidence that Paul, that it, that it is not primarily the sign of a gushing temperament, but of a gushing Christology. Once again, Paul shows his affection is rooted in Christ himself. His affection for his brothers and sisters in Philippi, as deep as it goes, the very affection of Christ does not originate from Paul, but originates from Christ. What does this affection look like? He says he yearns for them. Does that mean that he simply wants to see them? Because he does write, and he'll, he'll even say that in Philippians, I hope to come see you. He'll say that in Romans and other places, that he wants to come see uh, the recipients of his letter. But it seems as if Paul's affection is much deeper than simply looking like the fact that he wants to see them. His affection and yearning is not so much that he wants to see them with his eyes, but he wants to see them press into Christ. See, all, all is not well in Philippi, as we will learn. So Paul's mere existence in the city, his being in the same room with them, is not going to do anything to fix the issues that they have in their hearts. So what his affection does is not just say, I want to be with you, but his affection says, I want you to set your mind on Christ. I want, I want you to make your manner of life worthy of the gospel, as he'll say towards the end of chapter 1. This is the effect of Paul's affection. We'll see that at the end when we look at his prayer. But it's important here to see that his affection is not just sentimental. This is not just Paul being sappy because he's in a good mood. His affection has substance. His affection for the Philippians means he wants them to look more like Christ. What do we do with this? We could just say, well, we should have this affection for one another. Sure, we should. But given the depth and the intensity of Paul's language, I'm not sure that many of us are prepared to process that kind of implication just at a straightforward level. I mean, do you have anyone in your life that you would say, I have the affection of Christ Jesus. I'm not sure I have anyone that I would say, I have the affection of Christ Jesus for you. Perhaps outside of a spouse or a child. We don't, we don't think this way, in this deep, in this intense way about others. So perhaps we should simply start by asking, uh, 
Have I ever accessed the part of my soul that would be so committed to another person's pursuit of Christ that I would say I have the affection of Christ for you? Have I ever considered that I even have the capacity to think of another Christian in this way? We need to see how how countercultural and truly backwards and radically selfless this way of thinking is. It's possible the Philippians didn't didn't get that either, that they, they did not have the affection of Christ Jesus for one another because Paul is going to continually urge them toward humility and selflessness. And because we're human, the heart, by the way, has not changed in the last 2,000 years. We need to hear the same message the Philippians did because by default, we put ourselves first. And yet the constant refrain of the New Testament is die to self, die to self. So I want to do a test. I said we may not be prepared to even process this kind of affection. I want to do a test and see if we can comprehend the fullness of what that actually means. Think of the easiest person for whom you would say, I have the affection of Christ Jesus for you. Perhaps a spouse, uh, kids, perhaps a parent, uh, a child, perhaps a close friend. Let's think in terms of prayer. Say you're thinking of your spouse. In your prayer, I'm going to assume you pray for the, for the uh, basis of this test. When you pray, who gets the most airtime in your prayers? Who has the most real estate in your prayers? I know who it is for me. It's me. It's not even close. The one person in the world for whom I should be saying, I have the affection of Christ Jesus for you, does not come close to the number of minutes they get in my own prayers. This was so convicting for me this week that with regards to prayer, with regards to my own pursuit of the Lord, it is dominated by self-interest. My own pursuit of the Lord is dominated by self-interest. And the example we have from Paul here, just think in terms of prayer. What does that example from Paul look like? He shows us. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's example here is that the mindset and the pattern of prayer of a person who has the affection of Christ Jesus for others. Paul shows us what that looks like. He hasn't said a lick about himself. One thing that Paul will do as we move through Philippians is to constantly call us to others-mindedness, urging us away from this default setting of self-interest. And he models that here with his own affection. It is deep. It is the very affection of Christ. It is horizontal affection produced by vertical participation in Jesus. 
but he also makes mention of the Philippians part of the equation. Let's, so let's move to consider the object of Paul's affection. Of course, uh, uh, no, no question here. The object of Paul's affection is the Philippians. But I want us to consider the way he talks about them. The Philippians, likewise, are, are participants in Christ. And then as they participate in Christ, that reciprocates into horizontal action towards Paul. Look at the middle of verse 7. <clears throat> For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This relationship is not one-sided. It's not all Paul. We are seeing one half of the conversation because it's a letter after all. But the Philippians too are in this. We know they've sent him this gift. That's why Paul's writing. But Paul calls them partakers of grace. And here we shouldn't think of grace as as the irresistible grace shown to sinners in salvation. Of course, the Philippians have experienced that if they're Christians. They have received grace through faith. But it's unlikely that that is the grace that Paul mentions. Rather, what he calls grace is the fact that the Philippians have entered into Paul's situation. Their decision to intertwine themselves to Paul's ministry and several ways over the last decade, is what he calls their participating in the grace of God. That their willingness to enter into Paul's situation and participate in the gospel, not only right now while he is in prison, but also in the years before, is a gift, get this, from God to them. Now that's backwards. We don't see necessarily how this would be a gift to the Philippians, It seems kind of strange to say that it's an opportunity to give of yourself and be inconvenienced. It's like if anybody's having grace here, it's the Philippians having grace on Paul because they've entered into his relationship. But that's not what Paul's saying. He says they're partaking in the grace of the opportunity to partake. They're partaking in, in grace of the opportunity to participate in the gospel and link arms with Paul. We can confirm that, that understanding of grace, if we go to the end of chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. There Paul writes, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So the word granted here in 129 is just the verb form of the noun grace. So we could read 129 and say, you have been graced with the opportunity to suffer for Christ and be engaged in a conflict. Sounds kind of strange, right, for Paul to say that. And in fact, if you remember way back at the beginning of Romans, Lonnie made this point in chapter 1, verse 5, that Paul, having been given grace and apostleship, was a grace from God that he was an apostle and able to spread the gospel, that his service in the gospel to, uh, to unbelievers was a grace from God. And we're picking up on the same idea here. So that means the Philippians are partakers of grace in two ways, both by participating in Paul's situation, they've been graced by God with the opportunity to be involved with Paul. 
but they have also been graced by God with the opportunity to suffer for Christ in a conflict of their own. That's what we heard in in 1, 29 and 30. So the Philippians, it seems, are defending and confirming the gospel in their own situation, just as Paul has been doing all around Asia and the Mediterranean. If you're in the ESV, you may have already looked at a footnote. You sh- there, there, there may be a footnote there after this phrase, partakers of grace, back to verse 7. And that footnote says, or you all have fellowship with me in grace. So if you're, if you're putting the pieces together, this is, this is the same word we encountered in verse 5 that was translated partnership. Yet again, we have, we have Paul talking about a, a, a koinonia kind of partnership. But in fact, here in verse 7, the connotations of partnership are stronger. Because koinonia in the Greek has been modified here with a stuck a preposition on the front of it. And the effect that that has is it means participate with or participate alongside of or to be a fellow partaker with me. So the Philippians are fellow partakers in the opportunity to engage the gospel, which is a grace. That's why Paul's affection is set on them because they're in the fight with him. Like I said, they've been involved as he's brought the gospel around the Mediterranean. We heard in 1 Corinthians that they, they gave in abundance out of their extreme poverty to support churches in Jerusalem that they will never meet. They gave to help Paul in prison. And apparently they're locked in a battle of their own to defend and confirm the gospel in Philippi. So the battle for the gospel to flourish and the, and the flag for the kingdom to be planted is taking place on many fronts in Rome, where Paul probably is, and in Philippi, in every city in between. So Paul's affection, the object of his affection, is set on a band of folks who are engaged in the battle with him. For Paul, they act as medics and support personnel, sending in reinforcements to the front lines. And then at home, in their own role as, as infantry, defending and confirming the gospel on the ground in the heat of battle. Whatever this conflict is, the Philippians are there engaged. You know, you may be struggling to understand this concept of of, uh, we've been talking about these deep, affectionate Christian relationships. Because you, you put your own experience of church up against that, and they, they just don't look the same. You think, that this is idealistic, Paul, Trey. People don't act this way. People don't, the real world doesn't work like this. This isn't how I know church to go. If, if that is a struggle, I think the testimony from Paul and the Philippians here, what their relationship tells us, is go do some ministry with someone. Like, get a friend and go share the gospel together. Find someone that you don't know and tell them how good the Lord has been to you. Actually confess your sin. We make a habit of doing these things. 
And we'll see how this affection grows. We'll see how how doing these things knits our hearts together in such a way that casual attendance of church service will never do. Testimony from Paul and the Philippians of their relationship that we are observing is that locking together in the heat of battle has a way of kindling this affection. Paul says that it is a grace from God to partake in the opportunity of the gospel. The object of this this affection are these Philippians who are engaged with him. Different cities, different contexts, engaged together. And he yearns for his fellow partakers of grace with the affection of Christ. Well, finally, let's look at the product of Paul's affection. This is where we get to his prayer. He prays for the Philippians here, or more accurately, he gives uh, the content of the prayer that he mentioned in verses 3 through 5. And we hear several of these prayers of Paul. A few, a few weeks ago, Lonnie mentioned the book that I know several of us are familiar with, uh, familiar with Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson, where he walks through all of these, uh, these chunks of prayers of Paul in the New Testament. And this is one that he devotes a chapter to. It's very helpful. So I'd encourage you, if you want to hear more about this prayer and others from Paul, to go, go check out that book from D.A. Carson, Praying with Paul. But this is a common thing for Paul to do, and it's common at the beginning of his letters, by the way. In the way that he's, he's constantly focused on others, he just so happens to pray for others at the beginning of several of his letters. Here in chapter 1, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This prayer mimics the one that Pete read in Colossians, another one, another example of Paul praying. In both this prayer in Philippians and the one in Colossians, he prays for knowledge, discernment. He prays that they would bear fruit and that all of this would be to the glory of God. And here in Philippians, the net of this prayer is that the Philippians would be sanctified. We talked about this a few Minutes ago that this is the effect or the product of Paul's affection is it causes him to desire the Philippians' Christ-likeness. That's the net of his prayer, increasing Christ-likeness. We said how his affection was not just sentimental, but it actually produces something. His affection actually causes him to do something and to desire something in the Philippians more than just to see them, but the desire to desire that they look more and more like Christ. So he continues his correspondence here on the horizontal plane, as we've mentioned, but the focus of his prayer is the vertical plane between the Philippians and God. He's not so much concerned with their situation, with their, um, not so much concerned with their situation with respect to the world. He's mainly concerned with their situation with respect to God. The content of this prayer is not random. It is tied up with his affection. 
These are the kinds of things we pray for those for whom we have the affection of Christ. It does have a logic to it. He walks through, I want to just identify five things. I'll say these slowly and then you get them as we go through. But the logic of his prayer is that right love would lead to right pursuit, would lead to right conduct, would lead to right fruit, would lead to a right result. Love, pursuit, conduct, fruit, result. He starts in verse 9 saying, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. He doesn't specify what kind of love he's talking about here. Is this love for God? Is this love for others? But if we've heard anything in Philippians so far, it's that those two are not separate. It's that, it's that love for God and love for others are not separate realities. We don't have one without the other. The vertical, once again, produces the horizontal. Love, to God, or love from God flows out into love for others, and this is, this is rightly oriented Christian love. And he picks up on the fact here that, that rightly oriented love is not an amorphous thing. It's tethered. It's rooted in something. It's rooted in knowledge, he identifies. You may remember from Romans chapter 10, Paul mentions that the Jews had zeal for God that did not accord with knowledge. They had a zeal that was misplaced, which meant it was useless. Well, similarly, it is possible to have a love that does not accord with knowledge. Such would be misplaced. So let's consider why knowledge, right? What do love and knowledge have to do with one another? One seems stuffy and rigid and intellectual, and the other is heartfelt and genuine. But if we just think two seconds about the nature of God, this is not a hard one to put together. We serve a God in whom all truth resides, right? The God who never lies, all knowledge belongs to this God, the creator of the universe, who created all knowledge. And we also know that God is love. So, of course, our rightly oriented love towards God should abound with the God who created all knowledge. Because this means that our love accords with reality. It is tied to God's ethic. Our love is tied to God's righteousness. All of our love for God, for others, for ourselves, for our spouses, for our children, all of this is not wild, running free without, with abandon. It is, it is a tethered love. We don't get to define the terms. We don't get to say that love is love is however you want to define it. God has already defined it. He himself is love. And of course, we know that the, the greatest expression of love is to, is to give oneself up for our friends, Jesus will say. And we see that example from him on the cross. And then along with knowledge is required discernment to exercise that love properly. You guys may have heard we've been doing these, these apologetics discussions with our students once a month on Friday nights. And in, in a nutshell, this is what we discussed the first two, the two months of our meeting. 
that we have to be able to think rightly. We have to be able to think critically in such a way that accords with reality. And by the way, we get that from the Bible. So that's a love that accords with knowledge. And then the second discussion we had is that we have to hold this knowledge responsibly. We do that with discernment. We all know that there is a wrong way to say the right thing. There's a wrong way to do the right thing. And to, and, to, and to do that shows a lack of discernment. It shows a lack of wisdom in properly exercising this love. So a right love then must be accompanied by both knowledge tethered to reality and discernment exerting that love with wisdom. So Paul prays that the Philippians would possess this rightly oriented and fully orbed love because that leads to a right pursuit so that you may approve what is excellent, he says in verse 10. Or literally, that means so that you would approve the things that are superior or so that you would, you would approve the things that are worth the most. That right love accompanied by knowledge and discernment helps us to see what is best. He wants the Philippians in their pursuit of Christ to be charging after that which is best, that which God has already determined is best for you. One comment I ran across this week said, Paul's concern here is not the choice between what is good and what is bad, but between what is good and what is best. It takes much wisdom to walk the Christian life. It takes much wisdom for us to, to discern those things we read about in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, those weights and hindrances that can slow us down or throw us off course from running the race. And later in chapter 4, Paul's going to exhort them to set their minds on that which is excellent or worthy of praise. It's hard to determine that which is excellent if our minds are filled with these lesser trivialities. So he prays that they would, they would think on and discern that which is best for their Christian life. In that, that book I mentioned, Praying with Paul from Carson, he actually goes into several practical, practical matters to think through here with discernment. So if you want to think more about, about the approving what is excellent, check that one out. So a right love leads to a right pursuit to determine what is best, and this leads to right conduct, Paul says. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, we know that as Christians, we possess an imputed righteousness. That's what we call it when we are justified and God places Christ's righteousness on ours and that happens at the moment of justification. We have that full and legal, God-approved perfection of Jesus placed on us at the moment of salvation in an instant. But the fact that of Jesus' imputed righteousness does not give us the license to read texts like this and pass over just assuming that purity and blamelessness are automatic functions of that imputed righteousness. That makes sense? Paul's picking up on two ideas here that are ethical in nature. They're moral so what we cannot say is read this and say, yep, got that, I'm saved. 
Got that, I'm justified, I got Christ's righteousness. It doesn't work that way. If it did, then why is Paul praying for it? If, if uh, full, pure, and blameless ethical uh, morality came along with Christ's imputed righteousness, it would not be increasing because they would have gotten it all at justification. It cannot mean that. Paul's not praying for their, for their righteousness of Christ to increase. He's praying for their conduct of life to increase in accordance with Christ. You see the distinction there. That's one way that we could easily pass over the text in our running to the cross. We can pass over these, these ethical calls for, more, for, for Christian conduct in our pursuit of finding grace at the cross. There is grace in that. Do not, we, we've heard enough in Romans 6 and 7 in the last few months to know that. And at the same time, we do not simply pass over the New Testament's constant call for, for conduct, yes, real, ethical, lived Christ-likeness, and say, well, I have the righteousness of Christ already. There is moral uprightness in mind, that right love and right pursuit would lead the Philippians to stand before Christ. This is Paul's prayer. He would lead the, Philippi would lead the Philippians to stand before Christ with unmixed desire, with blameless motive, that their Christ-likeness might increase. As they move towards the day of Christ, they should increasingly in their conduct look more like Christ. This is tied closely with the fruit in verse 11, that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. To increase in Christ-likeness means being filled with the fruit that comes through Christ. This is to grow in the mind of Christ, as we'll hear Paul say in 2.5, set your mind in the same way as Christ. It's to grow in the attitude of Christ, the tone and the spirit of Christ. The fruit of righteousness that Paul mentions here is the fruit of the Spirit. What he wrote to the churches in Galatia could easily be inserted here. Grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul's affection for them is so that they would press into these things. That's why he prays. He prays that they would press into these things and grow in the righteousness of Christ. Christian, there's no shortcuts to this. There's no fabrication of this. There's no conjuring for us to just get from here to blameless at the day of Christ without going through Christ to find that fruit, to, to get from Christ by grace that which he gives us as we grow and we press into him. Our only hope in salvation is Christ. But likewise, our only hope as we walk through this life is to drink from this same fountain of Christ. This fruit only comes through Jesus. So hold him up higher. Do you look to Christ enough? Do you look to Christ at all? In fact, if you look to anything other than Christ, then you're not looking to him. You're trying to find something else to satisfy or something else to help you find this conduct or this fruit. It's not going to happen but through this one. 
If you are not a Christian this morning, that was to the believers. If you are not a Christian, I have mainly not been talking to you today. And I want to say that clearly because I don't want you to think that you could appropriate the concepts and the principles of what we've been talking about and and download those into your Christless life and think you will have the same thing. Because all of this that we have talked about comes through Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. The ultimate purpose of this sermon, of the confession of sin, of the call to worship, of the scripture reading and the prayer and the songs and the Lord's Supper is to glorify and lift up Jesus Christ. He's the central piece of the Bible because it's through him that God has chosen to glorify himself in the earth. That's why Jesus is is held up as the centerpiece of this Bible and the centerpiece of history. So I want you to know, if you're not a Christian, that the reason he is is held up is because he has done the work to, to fix this problem that we have that separates us from God. We call this problem sin, and Jesus died for our sin and rose from the dead, taking our penalty and showing that he is king not death. And he calls you to believe if you do not already believe. He calls you to believe in him and follow him and live for him and through him and by him and in him. The call goes out today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I was just reading yesterday, John chapter 9. And you get this story of the man who was born blind. And Jesus heals him, gives him his sight. And it causes everybody to be confused. Nobody can know if this is the same guy that was born, just the same guy that was blind before. And, and they ask him, I said, how did this happen to you? He goes, I don't know. This guy came, rubbed mud on my eyes, told me to go wash in the pool. You know, and they ask his parents, they bring him in, and they're like, what happened to your son? And they goes, well, we don't know. Ask him. He's old enough. And they go back to ask him again, and they go, who is this man? He healed you on the Sabbath. He must be a sinner. Who is he? And the man, been blind his whole life, he says, look, I don't know who he is. The one thing that I know is that I used to could not see, and then I met this guy, Now I can see. So you might not have all the answers this morning, right? There's there's a lot of stuff in here that might seem confusing, and I I I hope you will you will talk to us because I believe the Bible has the answers to those things. But the person I want to point you to this morning is Christ, because you might not have seen your whole life, but when you encounter this one, sight. Paul concludes his prayer quite as we would expect. Lonnie said it last week that the great theme of Paul is the glory of God. So it only makes sense that our love and our pursuit and our conduct and our fruit would result in glory to God. That our being filled with the fruit of righteousness is to God's glory. 
Christians, we need to see this link between Christ-likeness and the glory of God. It is not arbitrary. It's not that God could have chosen many things for, for us to be about and he just happened to land on us being like his son. No. No, he calls us to Christ-likeness. Paul prays for Christ-likeness because as the people of God grow in the likeness of the Son of God, that brings glory to God. Every piece of fruit, the tiniest pomegranate seed in your life that nobody sees is to the glory of God. This helps us situate this whole passage from beginning to end. That none of my pursuit, none of my, none of my own increasing in Christ-likeness is for my purposes. It's not, it's not for my sake. It doesn't just end here. It's for the glory of God. All of Paul's horizontal affectionate relationships for the glory of God. Paul's affection for the Philippians that they would grow in Christ-likeness for the glory of God. I think he shows that, that for us, we, we have to see that, that everything comes under this umbrella. Everything in our lives should be captive to this one singular purpose, to the glory of God. We, we do wrongly when we treat our relationships as earthly matters, but then we treat our faith as a spiritual matter. The example of Paul is something quite different that his, his affection for the Philippians is for the glory of God. The end that God may be praised. So I pray that our relationships, both in the church and outside the church, would be marked by this level of affection, that the way we love others, the way we conduct ourselves, the way that we give of ourselves for one another would likewise be to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. God, at times we come to the text and we realize that this happens every time we come to the text. We realize that that on our own we have no hope of, of internalizing these things and exercising these things. God, I, I pray that we would not be like the foolish man that sees himself in a mirror, walks away, and forgets what he looks like. God, would you help us to observe even a relationship 2,000 years ago between a man and a church, how that, that relationship here codified in the word of God, might be helpful for us to see and observe. Would your word do its work in our hearts? Would we go from here and, and think deeply about how we may increase in our own Christ-likeness, how we may not be so solely focused inside, how we may see all things for your glory. We thank you for the supper we're about to partake of together, a meal that images our own participation with one another. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his work on the cross, his finished, complete, final, satisfying work. And we ask that we would 
honor that and glorify that and lift that up and may it continue to impact us every day. It's in his name we pray, amen.